I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design, recorded in the Living Kitchen Studio. I met Aaron Valencich in 2011. I was producing the small space, big style design house. She was one of eight designers working on this remarkable project. And you've probably heard me tell a couple of stories from this, this project before in other episodes, her work, her demeanor, everything about the way she worked was professional and made her such a joy to work with. Now, many years later, I had the opportunity to sit down with Aaron again and discuss design, the state of design here in Southern California and some groundbreaking plans she has in store for you in the coming months ahead. Erin is starting a new uh, business venture, a digital business geared towards making the business of design more efficient for you. And having produced this podcast for over five years and speaking with over 350 creatives, you have told me that this is something you desperately want and need right now to, to make doing business easier. So here to tell you how your business is going to get easier uh, is Aaron V. Convo by Design is presented by Snyder Diamond. Their unwavering commitment to provide designers and architects with the tools to help create the kitchen and bath of dreams for their clients is unmatched. Why? Well, you have amazing service for one and world-class products that help make homeowners remarkable in the kitchen. And th with those two things combined, you just, you get an unmistakably amazing shopping experience. And you find products that are game changers like those from Sub-Zero, Wolf and Cove. Sub-Zero's refrigeration provides so many options with regards to finish, configuration, and width that you will find the right product for just about any space you can design. If not familiar with the Pro Series already, you must see this. Glass front or solid, side by side or over under with options from 36 inches to 48 inches, it's exquisite and you're going to love it. Pair that with Wolf and their warming drawers for both custom look and state-of-the-art design and functionality. This is function with flair and flexibility. And if that wasn't enough, Cove dishwashers offer that sub-zero wolf quality, style, and technology for a kitchen suite of products that just, they work seamlessly together. What could be better than that, you might ask? Well, through the Grand Kitchen event, your clients can receive three additional years of protection, uh, with a qualified kitchen appliance package. Details and conditions apply, so find out more by visiting any of the three Los Angeles area Snyder Diamond locations and visit their Pasadena or Santa Monica showrooms to see the all-new, amazing, and redesigned living kitchen. Who does have time? Yeah, it's insane. To do all this. Nobody. Um, nobody. <laughs> and I, I love that we're catching up. This is the first time that you and I have spoken we've seen each other at West Edge and we've seen each other around, but we've never had a chance yeah. to, to, to sit down since 2012. Let's see. I have it right here. You, you do. Date on it. This little brochure. Yes. 2012 Warner Brothers Entertainment. That must be it. It, it is. <laughs> so I, I love this. What you're referring to is, and I've talked about this on the podcast over the years, the podcast, we've been doing the show for six years now, uh -huh. and I've been talking about this on and off the small space, big style design house, yes. which was one of my greatest successes and one of my greatest failures at the same time because I didn't record anything. I know, I can't believe that. And you're a broadcasting and, guy. And I'm a broadcasting guy and didn't record any of it. But I have been circling back 
finding people who have been involved in I've got I've got the greatest story for you and I don't know if you I don't even know if you know this tell me but I ask designers mm-hmm. often tell me about the room that went wrong <laughs> tell me tell me I about tell me about the one of the greatest failures or, or just like if something went wrong, it went wrong, and what did you do about it? Because I love the problem solving. Creatives, designers, you're so creative. Yeah. And problem solving is what you do. Mm-hmm. Do you know that your room, your space at Small Space Big Style was my oh no moment? Was it? In my career. Oh my God. Do you know why? No, tell oh me. Oh my God, I love this. Okay. So that beautiful bathroom. Uh huh that you designed. Right. And I remember the red faucets. Your room was just stunning. So in the bathroom, about final, we opened it at such the wrong time. It was in September Mm -hmm. in in Hollywood and it was hot. And the trades that were there, everyone left the sliders open and cranked the AC on for like three days, 24 seven while they were working on it. I came into the space a a day and a half before um, we opened. Okay. I walked into your bathroom and along the side against the bedroom, what happened was the coils had frozen over and then everyone shut the AC off and they over, they spilled over the basin. It spilled down the wall and I walked in to like seriously a one, one and a half foot, 12 inches, seriously, a water bubble that was stuck between the wall and the paint. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Because you had, you had just painted it. Yeah. And it was stuck. And I was completely panicked, as you might imagine. Right, of course. What do you do with this? I had no like, idea. Do I pop it? Do I call someone? Yeah. Do I leave? Yeah, do I leave? <laughs> pretend I never saw it. But I've got, you know, I've got basically 48 hours, less than 48 hours to figure out how to make this happen. And by the way, Erin's not here. And I'm not calling her. Right. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you didn't. Right? I'm figuring this out. So I figured out, now that's never happened since. I can't imagine it will, it will ever happen again. But should it happen, I know what to do. Oh, good. What yeah. do you do? Because so, I know what I would have done. Okay, what would you have done? I would have popped the bubble and let the water come out and dry out the wall. How would you have popped it? Of a knife? You would have Anything just... Anything sharp? Yeah, you would have just... But see, my, my family, my mom had a painting business for 30 years. Yeah. So like, I'm very comfortable just popping holes in walls and patching them and painting them over again. Yeah. But you got to get the water out. Number one, yeah, so it doesn't go down the wall and ruin other things. So you know what I did is we had the shops at Warner Brothers, uh-huh. who were one of our partners. Oh, yeah, I remember. Right. And they did this. They did some amazing features on the house with the paint. So I called their paint department. I'm like, what do I do? They said, okay, well, here's what you do: go get a pin. Yeah, just pop a little hole and it'll drain out. Don't pop a big no. hole. Yeah. With a knife. Pop, put like a thousand little holes in it so weep. it so it yeah so it weeps so it doesn't pop it but it weeps out and they said in about you know 20 minutes 25 30 minutes all the water will be out right and, w- and which is exactly miniature holes which is exactly what happened mm-hmm. and then I had a bag because it stretched out the latex paint uh-huh. so they said then what you want to do is take a hairdryer and dry the paint even more and, and it'll start to shrink Genius. And then you'll be left with some overhang and some creases, and you're going to just have to do surgery on that, which I did. Look at you. I've never, I've never, I've never. That's why the Warner Brothers prop house is so incredible. The shops at Warner Brothers really is yeah, remarkable. They know everything. Yeah, they really do. And they so say, like, well, how do you make this go away fast? <laughs> 
because we got to shoot. So make it better. But that leads into one of the things. What I love, and it's amazing, is the institutional knowledge that designers, architects, creatives in, in the mm -hmm. shelter space have because you have to. Right. Yeah, you have to know how it works. It's part of the gig. Right. Your institutional knowledge comes from family. So your grandfather was a, a, a cabinet maker. Mm -hmm. Your dad was an architect. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of came by this honestly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I grew up on our family farm, my grandfather had moved into being a fine cabinet maker. Um, prior to that, he had been a contractor, and prior to that, he'd been a farmer. So when my mom and her brothers and sisters grew up there, it was cows, pigs, chickens, the whole deal. And then by the time I came around, Grandpa had turned in one of the old chicken coop buildings into his cabinet shop. And he'd like built the town church, put the second story on our farmhouse where my mom and my dad and I lived above my grandparents. And his oldest son, uh, Warren and him were, you know, fine cabinet makers. So I went out, you know, daily as a kid and played in the scrap wood and made Barbie sofas as one does. <laughs> so I grew up around this family of makers and my grandfather um, was an incredible inspiration, a wonderful man. And uh, my dad had studied architecture briefly uh, right under Frank Lloyd Wright, which was really cool, and then discovered that he really loved landscape architecture. So he followed that passion. Um, and then my mom had a painting business and she was flipping apartment buildings in the 80s before that was even a term. So she and a partner were buying up old buildings, painting them, refreshing them, and then selling them. And then she had a crew of like 30 painters that they had a big commercial painting company that she ran. And then um, when I was nine, she's like, okay, we're done with Sacramento. Let's go to LA. And uh, she and I moved to LA and she started doing more decorative finishes, you know. So she was an artist. She drew and paint really well, painted really well, like um, fine arts and crafts and jewelry making and all that stuff. So we were always living in fixers. Every house was a project. We were going to the Rose Bowl every, you know, the second Sunday of every month and going to the flea markets on the weekend and swap meets and you know, garage sales as a kid. And I mean, we bring home projects. She still has a garage full of projects. That is so great. That's fun. There's something too about because there there really is two there's two approaches to this one is one is the find and make your own mm -hmm. or or buy it as you already want it mm -hmm. right and you you tend to come from i mean obviously you have to practice both but the find and make it your own there's a certain amount of joy yeah that I comes mean, out I, of that. i'm definitely more on the maker on the creator side um i mean that's really how i started my furniture business is after um I had a career kind of doing media-based design, I call it, for about six years. I worked for a woman who um, had two shows on HGTV named Susie Coelho. She was amazing. Uh, she wanted to be the next Martha Stewart when the term lifestyle expert was, you know, all the rage. And this is like 20 years ago. Um, so we had two shows on HGTV. We were doing makeovers for The View and The Today Show and Oprah and um, spokesperson endorsement deals with TiVo and Betty Crocker and all these big brands, Maxwell House, you know, bringing their brand alive, doing lifestyle segments. And um, I learned a ton about PR and marketing from Susie. Um, and then after that, for six years, I was like, I want to, I, I need to start my own business. It's time. I was 24 years old. I'd been working long enough for someone else. And, um, and so friends of mine were coming to my apartment that I redid in Silver Lake. And it was all like, I stood on the you know, ladder at 11 o'clock at night and faux finished the Spanish wood beams that had been painted a hideous shade of turquoise by the previous tenant um, back to look like wood because I grew up with this artist mother and I can paint and I can draw. Um, if I ever wanted to skip school as a kid, she'd be like, cool, you're coming to a job site. Here's the sandpaper, here's the bucket, paint the baseboards. You know, like she put me to work. So, um, I can probably paint better than most contractors, personally. Um, 
so my friends were like, you should be a designer. Your place is amazing. And I was kind of like, what? Everybody doesn't do this? Like, you don't just make it pretty? This is just natural to me. And they were like, no crazy pants. This is not what everybody does. So um, yeah, so I started my design firm when I was 24. I had no, um, no college education. I skipped that all together. I got out of high school a year early and went straight to work. Um, decided I didn't want to be a doctor or a lawyer or an architect that needed a degree. And I would just figure it out on my own. Um, so I started my business with $3,000 and uh, took pictures of my apartment and knew how to do some new great graphic designers, knew how to create a beautiful image and knew how to market and P, you know, do PR based on my six years with Susie. And so just launched a career. That's awesome. Interesting too that you didn't just launch a career, you've also developed the career over time. Mm -hmm. So. You had the design business. You yep. still have the design business. Still do. You started the furniture company. Do you still do, do, you yep. still do that? Still do that. Okay. Yeah. We're, we make custom furniture here in LA. We have an 80 piece collection and we're in eight showrooms around the country. So um, in LA, I'm at Quintus in the PDC, in Hewn in San Francisco, Style Library in New York at the D&D, all over the country. How did you start that? So that came from that maker's element, you know, growing up watching my grandfather make cabinetry and furniture. Um, when I started my design firm, I was like, well, I need a sofa that fits like this shape. And I like this leg and I like that back and I like that pillow. So I guess that's three sofas in one. Let's go figure out who can make it for me. Um, so I started making cabinetry, wine rooms, bathroom vanities, kitchen cabinets, sofas, tables, beds, everything for my projects. We made typically 80% of what we put into a home. Um, and so that just started naturally that furniture was a big part of that. And I realized I love furniture design going back to that Barbie sofa when I was eight. I mean, it was like destined. Um, and so I've been, you know, working with incredible artists in Los Angeles since then and artisans and makers. And then in 2011, decided to launch a showroom and make it actually like a, a real business because um, I'd been making furniture for other designer friends. They were like, wait, you're making that? How are you doing that? You know, can you help me with this and that? Or I saw a chair you had in your project. Where'd you get it? I'm like, I designed it and I made it. And they're like, wait, I want one. So it started naturally. And then um, I always knew I wanted to get into product design. And, and so then that started with a 5,000 square foot showroom on Robertson. We did that for three years. Happily checked that off my bucket list of like, definitely don't need a retail store. Thank you. That was fun while it lasted, but I'll let the professionals in the showrooms deal with that. And I will just design and market beautiful product. There's so much to unpack here. I want to start though with the, with the showroom experience. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think you, you nail it. You nail it, right? can check it off your bucket list. Don't have to do it again because you can say you've done it. You've been a showroom owner and you have that experience. And now you've also got that, again, back to, back to institutional knowledge. And you understand all the things that go into it. What were the good things and what were the not so good things? Um, I'd say, you know, I mean, the day that the store opened with my name on the awning was like unbelievable. That was like, what? Pinch me. This is crazy. Um, and it was certainly fun to design, but it's a big, expensive, costly beast. And, you know, a part of being on the street is people come in, you know, retail clients and they want to take it home. Or, you know, even designers, they come in, they're like, I need, I need uh, two weeks. I need stuff. Can I take things? And you're like, I really want to sell you stuff. So what do I do? Do I not? Do I, you know? And so we would sell off the floor, which meant then the floor was constantly having to be refreshed and redone. And I'd go on a business trip and I'd come home and go into the store and like half of it would be gone. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what did we do? And they're like, we just, you know, sold it all. <laughs> like, okay, that's great. But that's, we can't keep doing this. So um, that part of it was hard. I felt like I had a baby that I just really had to, but you have to watch a baby. You can't go and just turn your back and leave. And I didn't want to be stuck in there 
24 hours a day, seven days a week, like that's not where my value is. Um, so it also taught me though that the product, I can, I can design anything and a designer can design a lot of things, but it doesn't mean that designer is going to live with a lot of things. So of the things that I designed when I launched 90 pieces out of the box, there were definitely pieces that I loved, but then I found they didn't sell. And when I really had to boil down, what is it about the pieces that sell that I design and what is it about the pieces that I design that don't sell? And it's that the pieces that I would buy personally and put into my home are the pieces that sell. So whatever it is that I'm putting out in the universe as the brand of Aaron V, it really needs to be genuinely what I would use and what I would sell to my clients and I would take in my personal home and those are our best sellers. And the pieces that are things that I love, but like I probably wouldn't buy it, nobody else is gonna buy it from me either. If you had it to do over again, was, was 90 pieces to start too much? Well, I think it, for us it really became more about um, we had a huge space with 5,000 feet, you know, we needed a lot of furniture to fill it up. Um, but you need a lot of money to do it right. And we were doing it on a, on a budget and that was constantly always a battle because it's like, I want it to look a certain way to sell a certain vision. But when you're bankrolling the whole thing yourself and you don't have millions of dollars to spend on your build out and on your prototyping, it was always this kind of dance of like, is this good enough? That, well, well, that'll be fine, or you know, having those holes in the floor because we didn't have a huge inventory either. Did you feel the need to put everything that was on the floor was your own design, or were you were you stocking other other works as well? We were not stocking other works, um, but we did have vintage pieces. So we had one-offs that would like refinish or recover, or that just came to us by way many different ways. Um, but for the most part, the majority of the furniture was mine. We had rugs um, from Caravan and a few other dealers and locally that would you know consign product to us that we'd sell, and art from art galleries like Fresh Paint and um, John Wolfe, some really great you know gallerists that were putting product on our walls because we we you know wanted to sell it, but we didn't want to make it. Um, and we had lighting and other things, accessories. We did really well with accessories and, you know, that small stuff that people could come in and take. Um, but to push a furniture collection, you really need to be in a furniture showroom where designers are, if that's my target market, I need to put my mar product where my target market is predominantly shopping. And I'd say half of our sales were designers on Robertson on the street, but it's just a different thing when you go into what feels more like a retail showroom. The mentality even of the designer is different. They're looking to just take it. You know, they're going in because they need it now, not going in knowing, if, okay, if I shop the PDC, I'm waiting three months, so I'm going to go in four months early and start the process. How did you get people to come through the front door? Because I think that there's a misconception there. Mm -hmm. when, when people open a showroom for the first time and you tell me that you're going to swing the doors open and there's going to be a line waiting for people to come see what you got for them, and that's not the case. Well, I mean, I think I have, um, I learned a lot about PR and marketing and, and how you, you have to tell them about it. You got to say something. You got to be out there constantly, constantly, constantly in their face. So we had built a database. Um, we had a huge launch party that was very well attended with like 450 people. We had celebrity clients there. We had the press there. I had a publicist doing media for us. 
Um, so it really kicked off with a big bang. Um, and then it becomes your salespeople, you know, making sure that they have deep relationships with clients that they can call and get in the door. Um, but we were doing email blasts, physical mailings. I mean, everything that you do now still, like that's just kind of best business practices. But yeah, you don't, very rarely do you just open the door and they magically show up. So you got to continually stay fresh and relevant and have events and get people in. That became a really big success for us as we'd throw a party. Um, I did a West Week wind down, you know, we're not in the building. So come at the end of the day, we had a DJ. Again, we had 400 people show up. It was amazing. And then they were like, wow, this is pretty. And they'd come back tomorrow and buy. Uh, so we did a lot of events. And, and again, it's really interesting, too, because knowing a lot of institutional knowledge, PR and marketing, there are so many different outlets and so many people asking for your, for your advertising, marketing, promotional budget. Yeah. You know, between the magazines and, you know, some, some broadcast, a lot of digital. There's mm -hmm. a lot of people out there looking to make it happen. It's not that easy. And knowing that, you know, on the email side, you create a database, unless you feed that database properly, right. you know, your open rate is really low. So how do you get the engagement? Same thing on social. It used to be, you put a picture on social, it's like people would actually comment. Now you, you get a like, you get a view, mm -hmm. but you get no real engagement. Mm -hmm. um, so... I think it's all part of evolution, yeah, you know? It's yeah. just natural. Like you change your hair, you change your clothes, you eat something different today than you did three years ago. And business is the same. Although it's, although it's the same, it's very different and it's evolving. So even though we still need to communicate to let people know we're there, the, the communication channels change, then they get flooded. So there's that evolution of, okay, now we're on, everybody's on Instagram. So you're not as special anymore as if you were a first adopter. So how do you get more likes, get more views, continually making that communication that you send out from your brand more genuine people want to see the behind the scenes you know take down the curtain show them how it works so show more factory shots in your stories and things like that you know but make sure that you're also putting out something that is lasting and beautiful and I always say that to my you know fellow designers and such is like if your Instagram if you went to your Instagram and wouldn't follow you because it's just not pretty, then stop posting the pictures of whatever random stuff you're posting, you know? Like, think about it that way. Like, have a hard look at what you're putting out. So Would true. you follow you? And if you wouldn't, rethink what it is that you, you know, what is that that you actually want to say and be putting out there? And it, then people will get interested. It's so true. Getting your line into other showrooms, mm -hmm. did being a showroom owner yourself help you understand and navigate that? I mean, I'm sure that, I'm sure it did. Um, at the end of the day, though, they look at you for your branding, right? So again, they're looking at, that's a hard look from the outside. How good is her website? Is it pretty? Is it elegant? Is it designed well and on par with my other manufacturers? What are the sales tools they have to offer? You know, it's not just, do I like the product? It's the whole package. And, and that goes back to what we were just saying about, you know, if you want media, media follows on, on Instagram and Facebook, is the whole package there? Um, you can't just have a pretty product. You really have to understand all of it. And, and I look at, um, you know, the furniture sales business much like being an actor or an actress. When I was younger, I thought I wanted to be an actor when I was a kid. And I, like, had an agent when I was 11, 12, 13, and I was going on commercial auditions, and I was terrified because I was so shy. I was like, why do I want to do this? This is miserable. But for whatever reason, I thought I did. And, you know, I had a great agent and you expect, you get that great agent and you expect the movie deals to just come running and you expect the Disney commercial that, you know, pays you hundreds of thousands of dollars that'll change your life will just happen. And it doesn't. 
your agent gets 10% because they do 10% of the work. And showrooms are the same. They take a small piece of the whole pie because you still have to run your business and you have to drive traffic. And they're there to help and to really you know, navigate a lot of that for you, but you gotta put the branding out there. You gotta have a beautiful website. You gotta have you know, tools going to designers that they need, like you've gotta participate. So it, um, it definitely helped my understanding of the whole process of having a showroom. But at the end of the day, it kind of still comes down to the same thing, like connecting on a one-on-one -on -one level with a human and asking them how you can help. You're listening to my conversation with designer and entrepreneur, Erin V. She is breaking new ground in digital design. You know who else is doing that? Article is an online-only furniture company inspired by mid-century style and Scandinavian simplicity. As a design trade professional, you are going to love the style and quality of Article furniture. Here's the best part. Articles created a trade program specifically for busy designers like you. So check this out. Joining the trade program is absolutely free, and there is no minimum for you to start receiving trade discounts. You know how popular mid-century modern and modern design is right now, and your clients are going to love this, and now you have uh, some help from a company like Article. What's more? They have exclusive designer pricing that cannot be found uh, elsewhere for less. They offer standard one-year warranty on all article furniture and the shipping. The shipping, flat rate in most cases, if not free, and it's fast. Stock items ship in two weeks or less. They handle special invoicing, tax-exempt purchasing, and the customer service is staffed by design professionals. These are real people who know exactly what you're trying to accomplish, and they have the authority and the know-how to help you get what you need. For all the details and to sign up for Article's trade program, please go to cxd.article.com. CXD as in Convo by Design, cxd.article.com. Thank you, Article. Okay, back to a fascinating conversation with uh, Aaron V. Not just having resources, but being able to use the resources that you have. Right. Along those lines, you have a new project. Mm -hmm. This is really exciting. We were talking about digital. Yes, and we were talking. There is there is a there is a big transformation taking place in the design space right now, and it's, it's digital and it's online and it's it's it was really slow to come. And I'm so slow. I'm surprised. Are you surprised that it's taken so long to get to this point? And now where you are, you're you're easing a lot of pain points. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I've started a new company called Style Row. It's been about three years in the making, um, and we're a, a platform for designers and architects to not only source furnishings and be able to find all the furniture, lighting, and rugs, and art, and wallpaper, and wall coverings that they love from all their big brands in these design centers, but we're building software to power their business and. You know, years ago, probably about three years ago, which is when I was like, okay, I have to fix this. I thought for my design firm and my furniture brand, there has to be a better way. Like the logistics, the back end, the paperwork, the business of the business that nobody likes to do or wants to talk about, but it's 80% of it. It was just terrible because, you know, we have all these, this flow of communication with the digital age has just increased communication, right? You know, you used to have to just call a human and then now you could email them and now you could email a hundred humans in minutes. And they right? can all, and, and they, they can, can all, all ignore, reply. or they can all ignore you. Or they can all ignore you. <laughs> and now you're getting 250 emails a day. You're getting um, Instagram messages and Facebook messages from clients and vendors and friends and trade. And you're like, the communication is like shotgunned around the design office. And yet we are all holding pieces of paper in our hand, like figuring out how do I get the paper in the computer 
and then how do I get the computer to give me the paper back in a different way so I can give it to somebody else so they can put their paper in the computer and like it's just kind of silly but that's what we're doing and yet we look at the computer and the phone and we're like you should be revolutionizing my world but nobody built software that actually mimics the way the design office needs to work and and the same on the furniture brand so I'm looking at that business and that team and I'm going I'm paying people to do data entry which is the same data entry I just did on the design side. So you call up a showroom, they give you a quote. So they're doing the data entry too. Like they have to enter all those products into their system, then they have to con configure what you want and they email you a PDF of a quote. Now I have to take this digital thing and put it into my system to send them back the same thing they just sent me. It's ludicrous. And then I'm a brand. So then my showroom is sending me that same order and I'm watching us all do it three times. And we're ordering 300 items per project for a house when we're designing a house. Easy, 300 items. And we have four financial transactions around each of those 300 items. We get the deposit from the client. We pay the showroom or the brand. We get the balance from the client. We pay the balance. And yet no one has solved this accounting nightmare that is design. And every designer runs the same. Every designer has the same problems. I've talked to all of them, the big, the small. When you ask them about that side of the business, they're like, oh, God, but I love what I do, you know? And so I was like, okay, well, we need to work smarter, not harder. So someone needs to solve this problem. I guess it'll be me. And that's where Style Row came from. I was like, we need a design process that just mimics how we work. We need to share inspiration. We don't want to start in Pinterest and then leave it because it doesn't do anything, which is what happens. And Pinterest wasn't meant for designers and clients to collaborate. That's not what Pinterest is there for. It's meant to just save pretty things. You can reference them later. It's not a team tool. And we are a team either the designer and the client or the design team, all of the vendors, you know, we're running huge teams. We're like a football team. When you really look at the amount of humans that we interact with to get one project done, Pinterest isn't made for that. So we need a better way to share inspiration. We need a place to actually save all the products the design firm loves to sell. I mean, where do you save that digitally? Nowhere is the answer. Like maybe some are in your invoicing software, but it's not really again meant to like resell product. It's QuickBooks. It wasn't meant to be shared and to resell from. And so we built a digital product library. That's the first tool we're launching with Style Row. We have designers using it this month or in beta, which is exciting. So a whole design firm can collaborate around what they love. You know, I have interns coming in years ago and they'd be like, so I need to look for lamps uh, for Susie's bedroom. Where, where, where do you like me to shop? And I'm like handing them a Word doc with websites and passwords. You know, it's like, how am I not able to just create a central database of everything that my firm loves? And you go into a showroom and you take hundreds of photos. I have 26,000 photos in my iPhoto. And it's all a product I want to sell. Tables, lamps, rugs, doors, you know, inspiration. I can't tag it. I can't sort it. I can't share it with my team. Again, because iPhoto isn't meant for people to be shopping out of it and reselling from it and sharing amongst the team. So designers can upload all the pictures they love, tag them by the product, tag them by the showroom so that anyone on their team can find it later. It's like, we need lamps for her bedroom. Great. Go to our lamps. Boom. It's all there. And then in order to get some of those efficiencies going, I'm like, I want to be able to drag and drop product into an invoice. I want to stop this ridiculous quote purchase order manual entry, you know, game that we have going on. So if I want to drag and drop product into an invoice, I need the product in a platform where I have all the data. I have the price, the size, the SKU, the options. So that's where our marketplace came from. We built an incredible, powerful marketplace. And what does that mean? That means all the brands and showrooms together in one place. You can shop a showroom. You can say, I love Thomas Lavin. So I'm going to go and sort Thomas Lavin and lighting. And I see all the lighting of all the manufacturers that he represents. And I can buy it 
via Style Row, but through the Thomas Lavin showroom. So it works the way our industry works now, but we're taking out all the like redundant, obnoxious part of the industry and allowing designers quick access to product because we're in the Amazon day and age. You just click to buy anything on your phone, but yet you come to work as a design professional and it's kind of like the 90s. <laughs> and I don't want it to be the 90s anymore. I want it to be 2019 and I want my clients to be like, my designer is so fast and savvy and like the documents she send me, I can understand them. The price is right next to the photo of the item. Like imagine that, you know, like it's really easy. So that's what we're doing. You don't want people to tell you how great their MySpace page looks? Right. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like when I still see a purchase order come across my desk that says, fax back your credit card authorization form. I'm like, oh God, oh God, are we really there still? Because I haven't owned a fax machine in like legit 15 years. Like, I, know, I don't right? know what we're doing with that. Right. That it's, should not be on anybody's credit card authorization form. It's, it's, there shouldn't even be a credit card <laughs> authorization form. Why is there even a farm? Like I can Venmo you money right here, right now. You know, you can Venmo a stranger. I pay a tip to the nail salon girls via Venmo, you know, and yet here we are doing millions of dollars of commerce together and I'm filling out a credit card authorization form. It's just, it's the nineties. It, it's, it, <laughs> it's painful. And it's right next to your pager number. Totally. Right. Yes. Um, it, it is, it is so funny that you talk about that. So at West edge design fair, it, this past October, I, I Convo by Design presented all the programming. Mm -hmm. And the first event that we did was brand development for creative types. And I went, I went through, over the course of six years doing the podcast, something really interesting has happened because I ask a lot of questions. What you're talking about is 100% true. Yeah. In my research. Awesome. I have found, <clears throat> excuse me, I have found that designers, on average, are spending 110% of the time that they have allocated to do their job. Easily. Absolutely. 110% of the time to do that, that they have allocated to do work. And that's not, designers don't work a 40-hour work week. So I don't, I don't consider it a 40-hour work week. No, oh, it's, it's more like 80. It's, it is more like, <laughs> it, it's, it's between, you know, it's, the average is probably right around 60. Yeah. It's, it's between 50 and 70 for sure. Clients um, call us at 10 o'clock at night on a Friday. Yeah. They're messaging you Saturday morning and they expect a response. They don't care about weekends. No, and when you get that, when you get the email on, on Sunday afternoon, if you wait until Monday morning to respond to it, you're it's still it's still in the back of your mind the whole time and you're feeling guilty and you feel you're not going to wait you're going to do it on Sunday you're still working right so I think on average it's 110 percent of the time that you have allocated mm -hmm. which means that that 10 percent of the time is coming from somewhere else it's mm -hmm. coming from family time it's mm -hmm. coming from personal time it's coming from passion time it's coming from things that you would rather be doing yeah to recharge the creative batteries and what you're saying is absolutely true because nothing works on on point and because when it comes to specifying product or researching product or just running the business, yeah, it takes too long. And I and I love what you're doing. I'm a fan. I'm a fan of House. I think you know. I think House is a great platform for, for what they started. But they've they've also kind of gotten off. In my opinion, they've kind of gotten off track a mm -hmm. little bit, mm -hmm. um, and don't really serve the design community necessarily as as well as one might think that they would. Well, but they weren't built for the design community. And that's something that you have to look at when you think about these things, right? The reality of House is that it started as a Pinterest for the home, for consumers, for end users, for clients to be able to find cool, pretty things. And that's great. 
And then they started having success with that because people like to look at pretty pictures of houses and they're doing projects and they need a, they need a resource. And then they kind of added this LinkedIn side of design, if you will. Oh, you want to remodel? Well, let's help you find a contractor. Let's help you find a designer. And that's great because designers and contractors and electricians and plumbers and all of us, right? They all need those clients. So how's should be lead gen for professionals. But then they also started saying, well, let's also sell product ourselves um, to these end users, some that aren't going to hire a professional and they just want some lamps or they want tile or they want whatever they want. And so how's as a, as a platform is, I mean, they have a $4 billion valuation. They're massive. And I think it's fantastic that they are speaking to a large segment of the population that needs them. But I think that it really needs to be made clear also that like there is this massive design professional community. I mean, humans spend like 96% of their life in a space. That space has to be designed and built and then it has to be furnished from the inside to be usable. And 70% of that time is spent in a residence. So there's this massive, massive, massive industry that no one has built a platform for because house wasn't built for designers. They're like, they want the trade now. And now they're like, oh, wait, there's these people over on this other side of it. And as the design professionals, we're like, well, yeah, we like it. But at the same time, you weren't meant for me. And I have a business model that works. And so I'm going to stay over here by myself. And that's what Style Row is here for. Style Row is the high-end solution for the trade software to power your design firms and then allow the showrooms and the brands to connect as well. So as a design firm, I need a better way to work. And as a furniture brand, I need a better way to communicate with designers about those orders. So we built one central brain. The designer plugs in, the showroom plugs in, and the brand plugs in. And we don't rely on humans to push information via email. You can just, as a manufacturer, paste that tracking number into Style Row. Showroom gets it instantly. Designer gets it instantly. Uh, so you're in beta now. Yeah. How? Uh, when? When can people get involved? And and how? And who is the who's the primary? Um, our target audience is the professional designer and the big firms. So we have um, over 300 firms signed up on our wait list to get into our beta uh, for our product library and to be able to use start using the tools. Um, our marketplace. We're currently loading in about 70 brands and showrooms. So we've got you know showrooms like. Dakota Jackson, um, Thomas Lavin, Quintus, Hune, Sloan Miyasato, Una Milan, 20th, um, brands like Kalman Chang, uh, Needler Faucher is another showroom that's been a huge supporter of ours because they understand a connected design industry is a profitable, powerful, successful design industry. And um, Boyd Lighting, McEwen Lighting, I mean, incredible brands, fabulous rug vendors, um, fabric vendors, Stark, Jab. So we've got great success coming and support coming from the industry because we're truly building it for us. It's built by design professionals for design professionals, and it's good for everyone. So the marketplace, we're putting in about 15,000 products right now. Um, we're hoping to launch that in June, July, have it ready for the fall. And we're the first to be able to actually custom, uh, sorry, actually price custom furniture. So a designer logs in, they see all the options for the table, they click the base they want. I like the brass base and I want the walnut top. How much is that? Bam, their DNet price is right there. I want to look at the polished nickel base and maybe the Macassar exotic wood top. How much is that? Click two buttons, bam, DNet price. So showroom reps can use it. There's no need for a showroom rep to have to access a PDF price list anymore. Like put the calculator away. You don't need to flip to page 32 and do all this work just to tell someone how much the table is. So we built custom software to price custom furniture in a way that no other platform has. Um, I met with some really big brands in our space, the Holly Hunts, the Eggs of the world, and they're like, we have been trying to get our website to do what you have made yours do for years. And our tech team just says we can't. 
And I said, yeah, because you built a website to show pretty pictures. I built software to power an industry. And they're very different things. So if Holly Hunt wants to make their site do that, they've got to rip, it, rip down the house, put in a new foundation, build the house again, right? Which, of course, they can do, but that's a lot of time and a lot of money. And we've done that. So we can be that platform for the industry to connect. Um, like you would shop on an Etsy or an eBay, you know, as the person shopping, that you're not buying from Etsy or eBay. You're buying from the person on the other side, right? Same kind of concept with Style Row. We built the platform for the designers to shop through their showrooms from the brands that they love. Is, is this also a, a, a vehicle for manufacturers to stop producing those massive catalogs? I think so. I mean, as a brand, I've seen the, the want for paper catalogs severely decrease over the years. Um, as a designer, I refuse them. I'm like, please don't give that to me. Do you really? Oh, yeah. I don't yeah. want that. Please. It makes me sad when I get paper in the mail that I'm just going to throw in the trash. It's, it's not the way we work. We shop online. You talk to any design firm with anyone under 50 in it, and the majority of the young designers are the ones doing the sourcing. You know, those junior designers coming out of school, they're the millennial. And by 2025, which is only a few short years away, 75% of our workforce in design will be millennial. They're born with iPhones in their hand, and then yet we, call, we bring them to the job site, bring them to work, shall we say, and we're like, well, here's a piece of paper, and there's your fax machine, dear. They're like, what? And on top of it, the clients are getting younger. And that's what we really need to be focused on as an industry. Um, and that's where we're coming from as Style Row, as a business, is we need to help our frontline sales team, which is our designers, be able to talk to their clients better, share with their clients in a way that makes their client, who's spending the millions of dollars to hire the professional and build the house and buy all the pretty things, they're, at the end of the day, most clients are frustrated. They're beat down by the process. They're exhausted. They love their house. And they're like, whew. I don't know if I would do this again. And that is terrible. If that is what our customer, because all of us ultimately have the same customer, right? If that client isn't building and isn't buying from our designers, we're not selling anything. So we need that person to go, this was amazing. Not only do I have a gorgeous space, the process was so seamless and easy. Friend, you should hire my designer. We don't even have tools for our client to sit at lunch and share their design with their friend and do lead gen for us. Like that doesn't exist. So... Great transition. Awesome segue. Thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Because I was totally taking you in that direction. It, it was sort of like two questions. The first is, it, yeah. it feels like what you're doing is certainly for desktop, laptop, but it it's, feels like it's more designed for mobile. Well, it's a desktop solution first because we are building this for designers and architects who sit nine to five at their desk. Um, but of course, there has to be a mobile application, right? Because we're on our phones just as much, if not at the same time as we're on our desktop, we're on our phone. But the majority of our business is still transacted on a desktop because yeah. um, it's a big screen and it's easy. Um, but absolutely, we'll have uh, it's mobile optimized and then we'll, run out, we'll roll out a mobile app later so that when you're on a job site with a client and they're like, I don't really love this chair. Can you show me some others? You're like, absolutely. Let me open up my product library in Style Row where I've already saved 150 chairs that I love filter by name, by brand, by price, by lead time, by availability, and right there be able to sell to your client. Because the, lead, the lag time in the communication is what kills so many sales, right? You talk to any sales professional, and what do they say? Strike while the iron is hot. It's true. 
get their money when they're willing to give it to you. Don't let them go and talk to their friend over dinner and come back a week later and decide that they don't actually need chairs or that they found something themselves on CB2 that's showing up in a week. Don't let them have that opportunity to not buy your product. And so we're building tools to give to that designer so that they can make more sales. And because when that designer sells more product, guess what? The whole industry sells more product. But as an industry, we need to be looking out for our first line sales team, and that's our design professional. And they're the ones that are getting run over in the street, if you will, by their clients and the inefficiencies of the business. And it's just not fair. Totally true. And where I was going with the transition is, it's interesting, in my, in my research as well, in talking to designers, it's so fascinating. When you ask the majority of designers, where do your clients come from? Mm-hmm. Their number one answer is, of course, word of mouth. Referral. Absolutely. Yeah. And my challenge to that is, okay, but that's not where it started. Where did it start? Because unless you know where, where the chain starts, mm-hmm. you don't understand how to go back and remarket, mm-hmm. right? And, and most designers, most creatives don't know that. And so because they don't, what they rely on is the old way of doing things. Right. You know, well, I send out emails and I, you know, and occasionally I'll buy an ad in a magazine. I, I love, I love design publications. Yeah, me too. I, I love shelter space magazines because I'm tactile. I love to, to I love turning pages. Same I, here. I realize that not everybody does. Mm-hmm. Some people would prefer just to consume the information if they want to do it on a, on a digital platform and they want to, I, I like magazines. Yeah. But the magazine industry has changed. Mm-hmm. My, my background with Playboy was, listen, the rate base had gone down substantially, and the add-to-edit ratio had gone up substantially. And when you make those two changes in significant fashion, you're going to change the nature of what your product is. Right. You're going to have less editorial. People notice that. Sure. They're not going to read it as much because the value is... Well, there's less to read. There's less to read, and so mm-hmm. the value is, is less. Whether that's true or not, that's what the perception is. Right. And so as these things keep changing, so I'm curious, why, don't, why isn't there a way to, to get that same PR, marketing, advertising in a, in a more efficient fashion? And I'm wondering if, if you've come up with any, any answers in that regard. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, we're doing storytelling. We have a whole editorial side around our business as well. Because again, yeah, the, the storytelling in the luxury space is everything. If you're buying a Ferrari, the guy buying the Ferrari and shelling out that dough really wants to know what he's getting, why it's special, how it's handmade, why he can't just go pick one up tomorrow. You know, they're made for you, right? And that's important. Luxury fashion, the same type of thing. The storytelling is so important. And you talk to any big showroom owner and they'll say the exact same thing. What do you guys do for a living? We are storytellers. You know, we tell the stories of these beautiful artisans and artists that we represent and all this gorgeous product that we watch be handcrafted and delivered. And yet no one is really reporting from the world of high-end luxury design truly in that way and in a way that is... um, putting the designer in a position of power to be able to sell that product to their client. And what I mean by that is, yes, there's fabulous magazines and I love them and I want them to continue and I I love to have my projects in there, right? But they're not providing a service for the people selling the product to the people buying the product. They're just showing off beautiful work of the people, who, right? So what we're doing is we're telling the story of the makers, the artists, the artisans from that perspective. So those designers can come in, get really educated quickly 
and regurgitate that storytelling the next day when they walk in and tell their client why they need to buy this $30,000 whatever. Whatever. And why they need to wait 18 weeks is because literally you're going to have a band of people working on this gorgeous piece just for you, you know? Educating the client. That's something that comes up a lot in the design space. You got to educate your client, educate your client. But we're now a digital species and yet we don't really have these tools in an easy digestible fashion for the designer to be able to share with their clients. We'll be like, here, read up on these brands. You think your client's gonna log into 50 different websites to read the About Me page? Absolutely not. Like, that's just ludicrous. And so that's really, again, another focus of what we're doing is let's give the designer tools so that they can get more business. Because I strongly believe it's that referral that we need to fix. We need to not even think about how do I digitally market my services as a business. Let's fix the fact that we're not getting the referrals from the people that have already hired us. That is your user base. We're basically alienating 80% of our clients through the process because it's so painful. That's insane. You know, there's literally a stat that is one in 10 that could hire a designer does. One in 10. Our business could 10, 10x if the people with the money that could hire us did. So we have so many potential customers out there that could hire designers. If only one in 10 is hiring a designer that could, why aren't they? Is there a follow-up to that as, as to why they're not? I think it goes back exactly to what we've been talking about. Of the, the clients, by the time they get through the process, the majority of them are beat down, are exhausted, are frustrated. Things were late. Things were over budget. It was disjointed. The logistics didn't show up, right? And it's not all the designer's fault. There's, again, a, an army, a football field, a football team of people, right, working on this project. But at the end of the day, the designer gets the brunt of it. They're the person that hired all these people or suggested them and brought them in. And yeah. so you're the first person that doesn't get the glowing referral. And now, of course, I have many repeat clients that love my work, love the team, love the whole thing. And I have many that are like, oh, my gosh, this process is a disaster. How do you stay in this business? And I'm like, I love it. <laughs> it's pretty. I like to make things pretty. It matters. So, so, so true. Um, wrapping up now, I mean... Gosh, this is so great. Thank you for the oh, time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Really interesting. I want your take on a couple of things. So we talk about digital yep. and how the space is changing. And when the space changes, the business changes because yep. it has to fundamentally change according to the direction it's going. You talk about the people, the clients, the potential that have the money. You know, one in 10 will actually do it. We're seeing a fundamental shift in the way the business is being done because of digital applications and specifically right. in design, you know, the business is being discounted. Right. There are places where you can go to get, you know, and I don't have to rattle them off here. You know who I'm talking about that, that have, you can get a, you can get a room design for 49, for $49. You can sure. get, a, I was, I was approached a couple of years ago by one of the companies uh -huh. and they wanted to advertise on the podcast. Yeah. And they were explaining the business. I said, wow, it's, it sounds like a great business, but I'm going to have to say no. And I think they were shocked. They're like, probably. They're like, you don't want my money? Wait my minute. ad dollars? You, you don't want my ad dollars? And they said, you, you don't want the sponsor. I, I, they asked why. And I said, well, I started doing this. This is my second career. I started doing this because I, while I'm not a designer or an architect, I love design and architecture. Yeah. You're talking about fundamentally discounting the value of the people whose work I love to watch. Totally. I don't want them to make less. I want them to make more. Right. And we want the industry to grow. Yeah. And their argument was really interesting. It was, well, listen, if more people can afford it, then more people 
will use designers and design services. And while I understand the argument, I don't believe that that's true. I think that what will happen is the people that were used to paying X will now get used to paying Y because it diminished the value of the service that's mm -hmm. being offered. I consider designers to be as creatives, artisans. Absolutely. And there is an art form that goes into this. But at the same time, the business is starting to go in that direction, mm -hmm. which means fundamentally designers and architects, and not so much architects because there's, there's a certain scientific approach that is based on a lot of other factors, but designers have to, have to really work harder to prove their value. Right. Which you don't have time to do. Mm -mm. So you have to work smarter. Mm -hmm. Along those lines, are you seeing the trend and the trend line move more towards that direction? Because I gotta believe that that new designers coming into this who are raised on this on this way of doing business are gonna be more effective. So in terms of the kind of low-cost digital design firms, as I call them, um, you know, starting a tech company and having to learn how to pitch investors, how to, how to raise tech money, how to talk to people in a different way, um, a lot of misconception about what I'm doing with Style Row in the beginning is, oh, you're like a Laurel and Wolf, or you're like a Havenly or a Home Polish. And I'm like, no, those are all low-cost digital design firms. Those are design services. I'm services for interior designers. You know, I'm not a design firm. Style Row is not a design firm. It's a platform to power design firms. And they're kind of like, oh. So I see it as a very different segment of the market. Honestly, I always relate it back to fashion. Is H&M impacting couture? No, it's not. Is Banana Republic affecting Tom Ford? No. Is, is Kia affecting Ferrari? Absolutely not. And so as long as you kind of give a client or someone that's asking this question a little context, it's something they can understand. You know, is McDonald's ruining Nobu? F no, right? <laughs> is there, are there people that exclusively go to McDonald's and Chipotle and quick, quick, low cost food because they don't value food? Absolutely. Are there foodies who will only eat fresh, local by the most amazing chefs? Definitely. But what those industries do that we don't do is we tell the story in that way. And that's where I'm coming from with our storytelling and like, again, helping the design professional get exposure and the furnishings brands get exposure to their potential clients in a way that that client can go, oh, I get it. I didn't realize that when I'm shopping at X store that everyone likes to gripe about, that's Banana Republic of Furniture. Eric Chang told me that, and I think that's the greatest thing ever. And I'm like, you're so right. I love him. That's so true. It's so true. <laughs> so when you tell your client, that's actually not high-end, darling. That's, that's, you know, Banana Republic and Gap. Again, not knocking them. I shop at Banana and the Gap. But we're talking about Tom Ford, Gucci, Chanel, Prada, Dior, Louis Vuitton, and the like, and all the artisanal, gorgeous makers who have little boutique brands and lines. That's what you're getting. And so do you want that or do you want this? Do you want to shop at Henry Bendel's or do you want to shop at the mall? You know, and they go, oh, I get it. So I think if we as an industry kind of start presenting ourselves that way and unify together, again, providing the tools that are actually needed by our designers to sell to their client better, you'll get a better conversion rate. And I'm not, I, I think Home Polish and Havenly and all those services are fantastic. I don't do low cost digital design services with my firm. That's just not what we do. We don't design a room for 500 bucks and execute it for you with off-the-shelf, low-cost product. 
Do I shop at West Elm for projects? Absolutely. And do I put that product in the same house as Gucci and Prada? Yes, we all do. We all do a high-low mix, right? It's just kind of ridiculous to think that that's not happening. But I don't think that West Elm or Banana or Gucci, you know, any of, sorry, any of those kind of lower-cost brands or lower-cost digital design services are going to really impact our true audience. I think we need to get more specific about who our audience is and make sure that we're really reaching them. That when those luxury realtors are selling those luxury products, the houses, you know, they've got a slew of designers that they can refer to that they can trust can get the job done well and get a good referral because what happens again it goes back to fixing the referral issue fixing the broken processes that exist now because if one client gives you a bad referral to like whoever referred you so let's say you have a huge realtor that's a referral base for you you they refer you a client project doesn't go well that client's like yo that designer totally screwed me over or whatever it is or I would never use them again do you think that realtor is going to refer you again you just burned your referral source. Maybe they will, because maybe they'll give you the opportunity to talk about it and be like, oh, well, it was this and this and this, and blah, it wasn't my fault at all, blah. But a lot of them don't, right? right? They've got 50 other designers in line that they can hand those jobs to. So again, let's all fix the inherent issues in the industry now before we look at new ways to market ourselves. I don't think we need new ways. I think we just need to bro fix what's broken, and then it's just going to fix itself. It's the process. Totally. Yeah. Aaron, thank you so much. This thank was you. great. Thank you. Absolutely. Love this. Great catching up. Same. Okay, so this is a wrap on another episode of Convo by Design. Special thanks to Aaron uh, for, for joining me. Thank you to our sponsorship partners, Snyder Diamond, Sub-Zero, Wolf, Cove, Vondam, Article, and Cambria Surfaces. But most of all, thank you. Without listening to the show, without rating the show, without uh, downloading and sharing, there is no Convo by Design. So thank you for listening. Um, and subscribing. Thank you for rating the show on iTunes and engaging in social media. Until next week, keep creating. Convo by Design is proud to be working with Vondam Furniture. Their design culture is the key to their success. It's what pushes them to consistently create new collections that give spaces a new dimension. They create dialogue between environment and form. Vondam pieces can transform the simplest space into one filled with glamour that is both unique and extraordinary. And isn't that what design is all about? Creating atmospheres where you can take hold of life and enjoy it to the fullest. Vondam products are simple and elegant, contemporary and exceptionally comfortable. Their crafted modern durable molded resin, glass, and metal designs are unique. They beg to be enjoyed. Have you seen them featured in our videos? Check out our YouTube channel and see this for yourself. You can also find them in their showrooms at the D&D Building in New York, Wynwood in Miami, and the Pacific Design Center here in Los Angeles, or online at vondam.com.